Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, author Peter Doggett returns to join Nate for a discussion of the swing era based on his book, The Electric Shock, recorded music from the gramophone to the iPhone. In this episode, Peter and Nate talk about the Great American Songbook, Fred Astaire and movie musicals, and the great big bands, Cab Calloway, Benny Goodman, Duke Ellington, and more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Peter Doggett, author of Electric Shock. From the gramophone to the iPhone, 125 years of pop music. Peter, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much. Good to be here. And so we talked about uh, the radio era and the 20s last time. Now I want to talk about the 30s, which is still the radio era, but it's also the era of the great American songbook. And you talk about the Broadway show that started it all, Jerome Kern's Showboat. What's the significance of that musical? It- it was extremely down to earth in, 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 in terms of its subject matter. It actually addressed slavery and slave gangs and so on. Um, so, so that was quite a shock for Broadway audiences. But it was also really the, fir- the first book musical, um, the first in, in which songs were there, were, were there to, to propel a narrative rather than, than just to fill out a show uh, where, where the songs would actually push, push the story ahead. Um, and, and, and that would soon become the standard way of writing a, a, a musical, both for Broadway and later for the cinema as well. And it's not just Jerome Kern, but there's a whole school of songwriters that emerge in this period. And, and what you quote Alec Wilder uh, calling, um, no, it, it wasn't Alec Wilder, actually. It was Gary Giddens who called it an explosion of melody and harmony to rival the recently faded glory days of Italian opera. That's a pretty big claim. Do you think uh, that the, uh, it's called the Great American Songbook, the songs of this era, does it hold up to that comparison? Absolutely. I mean, if, if, if you think about the number of songs from the 1930s and 1940s, but particularly the 1930s, that have become such, such accepted standards that 
whether or not we we realize it that they are they are part of our still part of our everyday culture uh, they're still covered by modern stars um they they still would be heard on ads on tv or in the cinema they're just songs that almost everybody knows um and that's partly because they've got such compelling melodies but also because their lyrics are so intelligent they're so they're 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 um, extremely sophisticated. They're aimed at an adult audience rather than a teenage audience. They're often full of puns. Um, they're full of emotional complexity. And then on top of that, you've got music that's equally sophisticated and equally complex, yet is always extremely melodic. And and it also um, encouraged the rise of a, of a wave of performers that could sing these songs. And there's one in particular you single out. If there's one performer equal to all these shades and moods, it was Fred Astaire. He was not only the most brilliant dancer ever to grace a Hollywood soundstage, he was also, albeit with a clipped, almost stunted voice, an equally fluent, intuitive singer. So how did that work? How did Fred Astaire's clearly limited voice become such a supple instrument? Um, I, I, I think I think because um, it's an awful phrase to use. You have to be careful how you use it these days. But he had a natural sense of rhythm, and it was in, he was incapable of doing anything out of time. Um, he was absolutely steeped in jazz music. He loved he loved African American music, and he every ounce of his soul and his body reflected that that sort of symbol syncopated style um and he and he could carry himself both as a dancer and as a singer with incredible ease complete comfort you never felt that he was out of breath or struggling to keep up or in danger of losing his place he was always in exactly the right place both with his voice and with his feet and he was a perfect star uh, for the era of the great cinematic musical because he could dance and he could sing Truly a great talent. And let's hear Fred Astaire doing Cole Porter's Night and Day. Tom, Tom, when the jungle shadows fall Like the tick, tick, tock of the stately clock As it stands against the wall Like the drip, drip, drip of the raindrops When the summer shower is through so a voice within me keeps repeating you, 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 night and day. And that was Fred Astaire saying Cole Porter's Night and Day. And what is it about Cole Porter that makes him a unique contributor to this era of great songwriting? Well, he, he was certainly unusual for the time, and that he was one man. It, 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 it was customary for... Most of, most of the great songs in the, in the great American songbook were written by, by pairs of, of um, composers, not like Lennon and McCartney, who would both contribute words and music. In the, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, it was customary to have a lyricist and to have, and to have a guy writing the melodies, and, they, and, and there would be no crossover between that. And so you could have a genius wordsmith and a genius composer, and together they would make magic. And... and Yet Porter does it all alone. Who are some of the other uh, great songwriters of that era that you think we should mention in a quick survey? Um, oh, goodness me, there are so many. I mean, the, the, the absolutely classic pairing is 
Richard Rogers and Lorenz Hart. Now, Richard Rogers would later, with Oscar Hammerstein, go on to write many of the of, of, of the most um, enduring musicals of the second half of the 20th century: Oklahoma and Carousel, The King and I, and, and of course, The Sound of Sound of Music. But for the really sophisticated stuff, you have to hear the stuff that Rogers did with Lorenz Hart, and the number of um, in, in, in incredibly powerful and um, universally popular songs that they, they came up with in a very short period of time. It's incredible. I mentioned in the book that in one show in 1937, the show called Babes in Arms, they, they managed to introduce five future standards. It was My Funny Valentine, Where or When, The Lady is a Tramp, I Wish I Were in Love Again, and a song called Johnny Wonderland. Now, almost all of those would be recorded over and over and over again and still being recorded today. Yeah, and they also wrote uh, the song Blue Moon, which uh, Elvis Presley later covered, and, and that the chord sequence from Blue Moon becomes the basis for what's called 50s songs, the, the doo-wop changes. And so to me it's, it's sort of incredible to think of Richard Rogers not that Blue Moon is a toss-off, but just one of his songs forms a whole genre of music down the road. Yeah, that's amazing. And and also incredible that he was prepared to let himself be that simple in that song. In, in emotional terms, it was a very simple statement. And so he wrote music that was equally simple. And yes, so he could do that at the same time as writing something like Bewitched, Bothered and Bewildered, which is much more sophisticated in musical terms. Yeah, and another songwriter uh, from that era was Hoagy Carmichael, and you've got a great quote from him that I think catches the impact that jazz had on these guys, that, because they're truly not jazz, you know, jazz being an improvised form based on the blues. These guys are writing more harmonically sophisticated stuff, and they're writing songs, but they're inspired by jazz, and they go on to write basically the standards that, that bebop and the future jazz eras will be based on. But Hoagie Carmichael talks about the first time he played uh, with drums. He says, I'd never played with drums before and had no conception of the surging emotion I felt in my head. It was like a machine, a perfect machine that automatically placed my fingers on keys I had never played before. Yeah, and he, he like Al Jolson before him, was absolutely besotted with jazz and jazz musicians um, and jazz style, jazz songs. And so he, he would come up with a, a distinctively white version of that sound, which today you'd say, oh, I don't know, cultural appropriation. At the time, it, it, every, every song he wrote was actually a love letter to, to black American music. And it was reciprocated, as, as you can hear uh, through something as late as Ray Charles's cover of Georgia on My Mind. I mean, this is clearly music that, that spoke to African-Americans as well as, as being inspired by them. Uh, absolutely. And, 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 of course, earlier than that, Louis Armstrong doing Stardust as well. Yes, definitely. And, and I wanted to um, talk about the next era of jazz that kicks in. And, and you, you pinpoint one song, Louis Armstrong's 1929 version of St. Louis Blues as sort of being a precursor to the new era of jazz, an era called Swing. How was Swing different from the jazz that had come before? Um, well, it was more exciting for a start. And, and it, was, it also very quickly became um, more simple in terms of the way that it uh, excited its audience. Um, at its most basic, Swing would take 
um, an exciting riff or a phrase and just repeat it. Slow it down, um, make it quieter, bring it back up again, hammer it home with drums and blares of brass. And um, we'd, it would send kids in the audience absolutely wild. Yeah, and you talk about um, how the early jazz sides had depended upon a dem either a democratic interplay of instruments or the favoring of one instrument above the ensemble. But the jazz and dance band records of the swing era separated their ever-growing orchestras into discrete sections. So this is a much more complicated and arranged music for larger bands. It is, and it, it, it also, in visual terms, if you went to see a, a swing band, which, which was basically what, what every dance band was between the 1930s and the 1950s at least, um, you, you had the visual excitement of suddenly watching the whole of the trumpet section stand up, and they would do their riff, and then they'd sit down again and somebody else would stand up. So you're not just getting musical excitement, you're also getting visual stimulation as well. Yeah, and you talk about, this is another thing I hadn't realized, you talk about the dancing of that era, and people would see this in these huge dance halls that were packed, uh, you know, the Depression era vista of the big dance hall packed with thousands of people. And, and the dancing started with the Lindy Hop, which came out of Harlem, but I didn't realize that the jitterbug was actually a slur that black dancers would use for white kids who were trying to imitate their style and failing. Yeah. yeah. And it, yes, it's, it's interesting. It's one of those things like hillbilly, a uh, phrase that starts off as an insult and then, and then is taken up by the people uh, to whom it refers and as a badge of pride. And so, yes, you, you, you would talk about jitterbugs. That was actually the young kids who were dancing. And what were they, what were they doing? They were jitterbugging or, for short, jiving. Yeah, and, and they also changed their fashion. They started wearing saddle shoes and big, big frilly skirts that that would swing and sway with their hips to do it so it's one of the in a way it's kind of the first emergence of teenage culture as a distinct thing from adult culture it is yeah and then very quickly after that you you you, you get um what would have been next what were they called zoot suits in the 1940s and then the 1950s edwardian jackets in in london all the all the early UK rock and roll fans used to be called Teddy Boys, and so on and so on. Each each new musical culture would then have a, a fashion style to go with it. Yeah, and then I want to I want to play the record actually that that you talk about as being the prof prophetic of swing. Um, this is Louis Armstrong's 1929 version of St. Louis Blues, which is um, MC Hand. Is it? It's Handy, I can blank on his first name, um, the first blues song to be composed and put on sheet music. And he had played it in 1925 with Bessie Smith, but he comes back to it in 1929, and he said, Not a man to treat any text as holy scripture. Armstrong toys with it like a terrier with a rag doll, playing it as a tango, a madcap romp, growling the lyrics, accentuating random syllables, and finally hitting repeated accents the way Bill Haley and his comets would on Shake, Rattle, and Roll 25 years later. Within its three minutes, St. Louis Blues holds the future of swing, R&B, and rock and roll. Let's hear it. Louis Armstrong, St. Louis Blues.
that was Louis Armstrong's St. Louis Blues, which Steph is going to be mad at me for playing too soon without her cue, but I couldn't resist. Tell us about that song, and, and why did you pick that particular tune as being sort of the harbinger of a new era? Well, and the, the uh, song, first of all, was one, one of the earliest compositions by W.C. Handy, who sold himself to posterity as being the father of the blues, the inventor of the blues. It's not a 12-bar tune, but it became a standard that anybody who had any interest in black music would, would play. Um, and, and, and so by, by 1929, when Louis Armstrong got hold of it, 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 it was um, a 20th century st- standard already in the same way that, um, I don't know, the uh, early, earliest jazz hits would have been as well. Um, so it was, it was a song that, that could be interpreted a multitude of different ways. But I don't think anybody ever treated it quite as roughly as Louis Armstrong did. Now, what was the second part of your question? Uh, I was just wondering why you picked it as the harbinger of the swing era. Oh, right. Okay. Well, when I was researching the book, I, I was very systematic in it. My goodness, it was a pleasure. I went through the hit records of the, of the eras that I didn't know um, as best I could in chronological order. And so you can actually hear history unfolding. And that was the first record. Um, well, that was a record, at least, that when I was playing it, it stood out from everything around it as being, this does not belong to the same planet as everything else that was happening in 1929. It's, it's, it's as if Louis Armstrong has suddenly been touched by the future and um, electrified by it. And that was the, the record that came out. So um, for anybody who'd heard it at the time, I'm sure it must have had an incredible impact on them. Yeah, and that is a one way of putting context into this music. I, I found that a lot of records that you're familiar with you are you don't hear them in a chronological context necessarily. Louis Armstrong, you probably have in a nice Louis Armstrong box set or something that, and you and you listen to it in the same context as you're listening to Duke Ellington or Charlie Parker, and, and you know listening to jazz greats. But if you put it up against Rudy Valley and the things and Gene Austin and the things it was actually going up against uh, on the radio and the and the hit parade of the 1920s. Yeah, these things really do cut through and, and, and can suddenly have an enormous impact and you can begin to sort of approximate the impact of what it ha- might have had on audiences. Uh, also around this time, another strain of rhythm was being introduced into American popular music, and this was the rumba. A man named Antonio Manchin, the Cuban Ru- Ruby Valley, caught the attention of white listeners with a song called Peanut Vendor. And so is this the first time Latin music burst into the, the popular scene in North America? Um, yeah, yes, very much so. And, and of course, it's down to people from Cuba, from Puerto Rico, coming in increasingly large numbers into New York after the First World War. And obviously, they bring their musical culture with them. And then it, it, it starts, starts to mutate. It starts to join forces with, with the American music that's going on around it. And it becomes part of the, the great melting pot of American music. But um, yeah, so if, I'm trying, trying to, I have no idea how many different genres of Latin American music there were in the 1920s, 1930s, because there wasn't just one Cuban style and one style from Puerto Rico. There would be absolutely dozens from each country and then different parts of the country and then other Caribbean or South American countries would also have their own 
distinct rhythms, and they gradually would sort of merge together and, uh, and turn into something that, that that became known as Latin. Yeah, and you and you sum it up, I think, pretty well when you say in the musical melange of the 1930s, no style retained its purity for long. And and one detail I didn't know was that Cole Porter wrote his classic "Begin the Begin" for Xavier Cugat, a Spanish violinist. Absolutely, and that, so so that is a song where if you hear it today, it just sounds like an old song. If you hear it in the context of oh, okay, this is this is um, a Broadway guy who's going. I like this new Latin music. This is interesting. Let me see what I can do with it. Then suddenly you see the song in a whole new line. Yeah, and and I think you know we've we've mentioned cultural appropriation, which is seen as as a bad thing, but so much of popular music only exists because of what we would now call cultural appropriation. It makes me question if we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we try to stop it. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a huge philosophical and political debate, but certainly in artistic terms, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's one guy that keeps popping up as I read through this chapter and, and he's not somebody who's a critical favorite today. Um, but he was ultimately crowned the king of swing in the 40s. And Glenn Miller is somebody uh, who's pretty much dismissed by jazz critics. But you make a case for him as being important in this era. What was Glenn Miller's, I don't want to say shtick, but what was his contribution to the sound of swing? Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I would have thought shtick is actually quite a good, <laughs> a good way of <laughs> describing it. I mean, he, he came up with an arrangement um, idea, a particular combination of instruments, and he just hammered that home on every record he made. But he, he took all the, the sort of jazz ingredients of swing and, and simplified them for a mass audience. So if you've got a dance hall, whether it's in London or whether it's in New York or almost anywhere in the world, and you play a Glenn Miller record like In the Mood, everybody can move to it. You don't need to be a, a sophisticated listener to jazz or Latin music to understand it. It's basic, very simple excitement. And with a, with a tune like In the Mood, um, the, the, the original... I was going to say song, but the, the original tune was actually much more complicated than the record that Glenn Miller made. And so he gradually cut away at it until it was basically reduced to that riff that we all know and love. Um, and then he took it down, brought it back up again, and got everybody on the floor. Yeah, sort of a variation on the Kurt Cobain quiet loud trick, except yeah, exactly. yeah, it just yeah. has the one riff that he that he bangs home through the whole thing. Well, one band leader that isn't dismissed by critics today is uh, the great Duke Ellington, whose song Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. Uh, would you call that the anthem of the swing era, or is it more of a, of a harbinger and a prophet of the swing era? Um, yes, I mean, it's not an archetypal swing record because it's a little bit too sophisticated and a little bit too polite and restrained. I mean, it's a wonderful record. But yet, I mean, of, of all the figures in the history of popular music, I don't think there was anybody who's had the stylistic reach, the epic ambition of Duke Ellington. Because in his recording career from the 1920s to the early 70s when he died, I mean, he's, he was open to absolutely everything. He, he was writing classical music, choral music, Broadway shows, every variation of jazz from bebop to swing to to um, 
calm, polite, sentimental love songs. He even made an album of the songs for Mary Poppins, which he believed. So he, he was open to everything. Um, he had very sophisticated ears, but he never lost uh, sight of the fact that he had an audience and he, he needed to please them as well. And so let's hear it. This is uh, the great Duke Ellington with Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. Don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Do what, 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 do what. Don't mean a thing. All you gotta do is swing. Do what, 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 do what. And that was Duke Ellington and his classic Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. And another band leader uh, of this era, one who's an Anglo-American but generally more critically respected than Glenn Miller, is Benny Goodman. And you describe the way Goodman kicks off the swing era by triggering these hysterical responses from his audience. Yes, and the... the the, the uh, town to which he owed his career really was Oakland in California. Um, he, he had put together a, a band that was pretty wild and absolutely, definitely swinging. And he found that audiences around most of America couldn't deal with it. He, he went on the radio, people didn't like it. Um, and they asked him to tone it down because it was, it, it, it was just too noisy. Um, and then, and then suddenly, one night in in uh, in Oakland, they played the quiet stuff, and it went down okay. And they were getting, they're running short of material, so they start doing the wilder stuff. And they're greeted by this hysterical noise, and they can't work out what it is. And then they realise it's the kids in the audience in the dance hall who are going completely crazy for this music. And so, the more crazy the audience became, the louder and wilder the band played. And um, if, if there was really a birth point for the, for the swing era, that was it. And it's something that Goodman wasn't entirely comfortable with. No, because like, like Duke Ellington, he was a sophisticated guy. I mean, he went on to, re, to, re, to record classical music. In fact, I, I, Igor Stravinsky wrote um, pieces that were sort of half jazz, half classical for, for Benny Goodman and his orchestra to play. So I think he would have been much happier probably with a lifetime of playing Mozart and so on, but um, he was always paid more money if he played swing. But he's also a credible soloist, and and some new brought in, you know, Charlie Christian, one of the fathers of bebop. So he wasn't entirely what would you call a moldy fig. But somebody, one of his peers, Artie Shaw, uh, had an even more explicit love hate relationship with swing. Absolutely, I mean, he, I, I have huge amounts of sympathy for Artie Shaw because he. I mean, he, he, he certainly didn't have the hottest American band on the scene in the 1930s, early 1940s. Um, he had some of Duke Ellington's sophistication. He, he was a great musician in his own right. Um, he, he loved interesting, unusual, um, quite, quite subtle, nuanced arrangements. Uh, but he found that, unfortunately, his audience wanted him to repeat the same thing over and over and over again, which as far as he was concerned was artistic death. And I'm, if you don't mind, I'll read you a quote from the book where Artie Shaw, long after he'd retired, um, said, what happens is, is you make 300 arrangements and you arrive at one, like begin the begin. 
and you like it. It's good enough. You like the tune. You like the arrangement. It worked, and the audience liked it, so everybody's happy. But all of a sudden, you try to go past that, and you can't go past it. It's, it's in a sense, it's as though the audience is insisting you put on a straitjacket. Don't grow anymore. It would be like like putting a pregnant woman in something where she couldn't grow. Now, I happen to have a need to continue to grow. This is a curse I have, an overwhelming compulsion to keep developing. Well, if someone says to you, you can't develop, we want that over and over. You can go crazy. And I think he was speaking for an awful lot of musicians who would come after, after him. I think in particular of someone like Joni Mitchell, who, when she tried to incorporate jazz music into her sound in the late 1970s, Lots of her fans are absolutely horrified because she didn't sound like Joni Mitchell anymore. But she, like Artie Shaw, was an artist, and artists want to grow. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing the way some artists are able to carry their audiences along with them. One thinks of the Beatles, obviously, as a group that went through enormous changes. But another artist like Joni Mitchell, who's incredibly talented. Uh, and had a pretty sophisticated audience, but they they resisted her changes. And obviously, then there's Bob Dylan, whose audience. Uh, violently resisted his attempts to grow um but somebody like duke ellington from this era was able to grow in ways that Artie shaw was not why do you think ellington was able to bring his audience with him as he as he morphed through the the years and Artie shaw wasn't i i think because he didn't try and try and abandon his past i mean in the case of Artie shaw he he got to to, to a point in his career two on two or three occasions where he said i've had it with this swing the stuff i don't want to play that anymore i'm tired with jazz i want to play classical music and so he would get up in dance halls and try and play classical versions of, of jazz tunes or jazz versions of classical tunes and everybody in the audience would catcall they'd be throwing things at him and on one famous occasion somebody shouted out artie you stink and that was it at that point he said okay i've had this and he put his clarinet down and he never played it again for the next, I don't know how many more years he lived, 30, 40 years, he never touched the clarinet again. Wow. So, 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 so that was the Artie Shaw way of doing things. Huge transitions from one style of music to the other. You made the comparison with Duke Ellington. He kept his audience because he never lost, lost sight of the music that his audience first loved him for. And so he would change, he would um, introduce really, really complex new styles, he would create great suites and um, almost classical pieces, but he would still play Mood Indigo, and it, it don't mean the thing if it ain't got that swing, so that his audience could grow with him rather than against him. Well, and I think we should bring back the context that this music is happening in, and the, and the way that the change is a constant. And one, and one change, an innovation that we take for granted but was new to this era is the concept of your hit parade, which was originally a radio show. Yeah, which started in 1935 and, sorry, 1935, and one of the the young performers who got his first break on the the hit parade show was Frank Sinatra. Um, Now, this this wasn't a hit parade in the sense that we would come to know it after the Second World War, where there would be a DJ who would play the records that were best-selling. These were the most popular tunes. Um, and then they would have the, the musicians in the studio who would perform all of these tunes, not just one of them, all of them. Um, and, of course, this was hugely open to bribery. In theory, it was all worked out and um, 
I don't, I don't know, the same people who do the Oscars or whatever might have been recruited to, to tabulate all the um, stats and say, oh, okay, well, this is the most popular song in the country this week. But obviously, if um, a, a record company or a music publishing company had enough money and could slip the producers of the show a bribe, then suddenly their songs would be number one again that week. Yeah, and this is the sort of first birth of the payola problem that's going to dog music throughout the 50s through the 70s and on into today. Exactly. And another, another change that comes along around this time is technological. And this is the uh, new machine, the jukebox. How did this impact popular music in the 30s? Um, it's, it's, it's allowed different parts of the country to have... A selection of music available in a bar or a cafe or whatever so that was tailored for the particular tastes of an area so that if it was um, an african-american part of new york the stuff on the jukebox would reflect the taste of that audience if if the jukebox was going to be in a small country town with an almost entirely anglo-american audience um, then the jukebox might be full of country tunes or folk tunes. Um, and it, 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 it also set up the record, the gramophone record, as a means of entertainment. So it meant that you, you would go out for the evening and you would listen to, to, to records and dance to them rather than dancing to live musicians. And this is a huge sea change that has big economic impact on musicians. Um, that probably dwarfs the economic impact that that was so bemoaned at the turn of the 21st century with Napster and and streaming. I mean, you've got a whole industry of of you know before the 1930s. If you wanted to hear live, if you wanted to hear music in a public setting, you had to have a band. And then suddenly you've got jukeboxes and people are dancing to records. Band is without a job. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and that would continue. I mean, certainly I can only really speak for Britain, but when my parents were, were teenagers, 1940s, 1950s, if they went, went to, to a big dance hall in a big town, you would get an orchestra, a band. Um, if you went to a small local thing in the church hall or whatever, then they would be playing records for everybody to dance to. So it carried on way beyond the 1930s. Yeah, and, and one last topic I want to hit on this episode that's kind of a painful topic is the racial politics of the era obviously reached an ugly crescendo in Nazi Germany, but this was impacting uh, performers in England as well. And despite the overwhelming popularity of jazz, it was a source, you say, a source of embarrassment to British lovers of jazz that the music owed ex its existence to African Americans. Elaborate on that a little bit. I, I found it absolutely fascinating going going back through the, the, the British music magazines from the 1920s, 30s, 40s. There, there was a magazine who, which I, I guess some of your listeners may remember, which was called Melody Maker, which went out of business, I don't know, about 20 years ago, something like that, and was very popular in Britain, certainly in the 60s, 70s, with rock fans. But it started out as a jazz paper, and their main jazz kid... Uh, writer was a good reviewer was a guy called Edgar Jackson who would, would later go on to be a huge fan of bebop and he was one of the first people to really push experimental jazz in Britain but when he started out at Melody Maker 
he was really, really keen on um, making it clear that the music that he liked and that he was writing about was not that awful, cacophonous, um, unsophisticated black music. It was um, polite and sophisticated white music. And that was the kind of jazz music they were going to be writing about in Melody Maker. And I was astounded. I almost fell out of my chair when I read that because it, it went against everything I had imagined. I would assume that anybody who was writing about jazz in Britain in the 1930s was going to be going, okay, I love Louis Armstrong and uh, other black performers. But So to find the main jazz guy of that era actually hating black jazz, record, uh, jazz music, um, I was really astounded. Yeah, and, and some of the stuff uh, that you describe is, is outright painful, particularly the contortions that British band leaders would go through if they wanted to play in Berlin. Um, absolutely, yes. I mean, um, I, I suppose a similar, a similar thing had happened when the Olympic Games were held in Berlin in 1936 or, or when the English football team went to Berlin. There was always the thing of, okay, are the, are the sportsmen, are the performers going to do the Hitler salute? Are they going to go along with the um, all the Nazi rules while they're there? And I'm, for, I'm sad to say, some of the leading British bands who went to Germany, um, obviously for, for purely commercial reasons, in the month leading up to the, to the outbreak of World War II, they thought, okay, well, the, the German regime doesn't like Jewish people. Um, and they're going to be unhappy if they bring if we bring Jewish people with us. So we'll carefully make sure we haven't got any Jewish musicians in the lineup that we take. And they and they would cull the, all the Jewish guys from the band before they went. Very sad. And, and they would also call their repertoire uh, to clear it of anything written by Jews like Irving Berlin or George Gershwin. Exactly. Which I mean, it's it's it's, it's just mind blowing when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, and and it's. Uh, I guess, you know, the Nazis were one of those things, a reducto ad absurdum, where they took their horrible ideas to the extreme and quickly rendered it obvious that these were bad ideas. And so you see more open racism in the 30s than you do uh, in the 40s or 50s because people saw where that led after the Holocaust and World War II. But in the 30s, they didn't have uh, the advantage of hindsight, and so many people made bad choices. Um, and speaking of bad choices, I just got to play Glenn Miller's In the Mood and let people hear what we're talking about um, when we talk about Glenn Miller and his shtick. Glenn Miller in the mood. This guy died a mysterious death in 1944. Maybe he's not dead, but as long believed dead, disappeared over the English Channel. Is do you think his early death contributed to his reputation as the King of Swing? Um, absolutely. I mean, he 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 went down in history, and I suppose in the same way as Buddy Holly, as being um, this this mysterious guy. What would have happened if he'd lived? Well, if he'd lived, he he probably would have become outdated like the rest of the swing guys. By, by dying, he was cemented at the height of his fame. Um, there was the sense that he, he died valiantly because 
he was on war service maybe maybe he was flying off to play for the troops um and so he became a hero in a way which he probably wouldn't have done if he'd lived yeah and and what final thoughts do you have to sum up this era um it, incredible variation in, in american music um there were a couple of points when I was writing the book where I say, just look at the stuff that's available now, whether it's late 20s, um, early 30s, late 30s, um, when you've got all these different genres. You've got the Great American Songbook. You've still got the crooners. You've, you've, you've got the makings of modern blues music, country music, um, Latin American music, and you've got an incredible range of dance bands, uh, jazz as well. And it's, it's, it's like the world, world's biggest candy store. There's always incredible music out there. And it's such a shame that most people aren't open to it today because if they dip their toes in, I think they'll be blown away by it. Yeah, and it's music you occasionally uh, hear on TV or uh, movies, especially when they're covering that era. And I think some of it, a lot of it, translates very well today. And so, Peter, thanks very much for joining us. Okay, thank you. And hope to have you back soon. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when author Jesse Jarno joins us to discuss folk music, Cold War paranoia, and his book, The Weavers, Wasn't That a Time. Electric Shock, recorded music from the gramophone to the iPhone, is available from Random House and can be found wherever fine books are sold.